0: This year's Biblical Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies will be held online Saturday, June 13, 2020. Space is limited to 100 attendees, so register today by going to EphesusSchool.org. Father William Mills, author of Losing My Religion, is the featured keynote speaker. Other presenters include the very reverend Dr. Paul Nadim Tarazi, Dr. Nikolai Roddy, professor of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Creighton University, and Dr. Richard Benton and Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. Register today by going to EphesusSchool.org. welcome again ladies and gentlemen brethren and sistren to the tawahedo bible study podcast this week we are entering the first scroll of peter or the rock the stone chapter three as always in the beginning i want to remind you to subscribe to this channel whether you're in the browser whether you're in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you may be, subscribe and share it with other people. Share the ideas that you hear, share the scriptures, memorize the scriptures and share share them with one another. Discuss the finer points, the nitty-gritty details, and of course, share links. Spread the good word. Finally, donate if and when you can. Patreon.com slash Tawahedo. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tawahedo. So we are in chapter 3 of First Peter. Let us begin with verses 1 to 6. Today I'll be reading from the Anglican scholar N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament translation. It's very thought for thought. In the same way, let me say a word to the women. You should be subject to your husbands, so that if there should be some who disobey the word, they may be won without a word through the behavior of their wives, as they notice you conducting yourselves with reverence and purity. The beauty you should strive for ought not to be external, not ought not to be the external sort. Elaborate hairdressing, gold trinkets, fine clothes, rather, True beauty is the secret beauty of the heart, of a sincere, gentle, and quiet spirit. That is very precious to God. That is how the holy women of old, who hoped in God, used to make themselves beautiful in submission to their husbands. Take Sarah, for instance, who obeyed Abraham and called him master. You are her children if you do good and have no fear of intimidation. So here, we learn that great aphorism, but in biblical terms, that our actions speak louder than our words. Women in the audience, you are able to win over your husbands, even when they are disobedient to God, by making sure that you have the right heart, which According to Semitic culture, to translate it to our culture, means thought or thoughts. So, if your thoughts are in the right direction, if you're thinking godly thoughts, then that should be greater than any cosmetics, any jewelry, or any designer brands. If you have the Older Testament memorized, then you realize here again what is being mentioned in verses one to six. Is that the Hebrew Bible or the Older Testament is still relevant? You have to know about Abraham and Sarah, and you have to strive to be a daughter of Sarah. Sarah is mentioned in Genesis, she's mentioned in Isaiah, and she's mentioned in Galatians, especially in Galatians chapter 4, where we see that the children of Sarah are the children of a free woman. So if you wanna be daughters of the free woman of the heavenly city, of the Jerusalem that is above, then you have to be blameless, even in the face of people who are very blameworthy being attached to your side. Verse seven, you men in the same way, think out how to live with your wives. Yes, they are physically weaker than you, but they deserve full respect. They are heirs of the grace of life just the same as you. That way, nothing will obstruct your prayers. The more literal versions say the weaker vessel. So here, in contrast to the six verses for women, we see only one verse for men. And here, the men are told, even though it's much shorter, something similar. Um, I think that the reason the women have a longer section here, this is just my educated guess, is that... The husbands and men in general, by virtue of what's being defined here in verse seven, being physically stronger or the stronger vessel and the others being the weaker vessel or physically weaker, are more abusive. They have more power. And as Lord Acton says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you take that and scale it down a bit, power corrupts. So them having more power means they're going to be more corrupt. They're going to abuse it more. And yet, they're called to togetherness in the grace of life. They're called to keep praying with their women. Even if their women are not the best at that, they have to remember to call them to that life and that grace that is found in God. And it's found in oneness. It's found in unity. It's found in togetherness. Verses 8 to 12. The aim of this is for you all to be like-minded, sympathetic, and loving to one another, tender-hearted and humble. Don't repay evil for evil or slander for slander, but rather say a blessing. This is what you are called to do so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days should guard the tongue from evil and the lips from speaking deceit, should turn away from evil and do good should seek peace and follow after it. For the Lord's eyes are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, in other translations, it says, seek peace and pursue it. It's from the Psalms, right? It's telling us to sing the psalmody, to keep our midnight watch and pray the Psalms. It's telling us, look at Psalm 33, according to the Septuagint, And Psalm 34, according to the Masoretic text or the the Hebrew text that we have available, verses 12 to 16. The marital analogy of verses 1 to 7 is similar to the text in Ephesians from Paul. So here we have the Pauline and Petrine uh, traditions lining up. Just like I said, they lined up with Sarah. They line up with this marital analogy. So you have a husband and wife, and they're both given Recommendations and commendations, but now they're put together and represent a church community. And within that church community, love is to be encouraged. And love is expressed in many different ways, but chiefly by blessing those who revile you. It's easy to bless those who bless you, but how hard is it to bless those who revile you? When has anyone ever said, F you, F your mother, or cussed you out in some way? Or embarrassed you or shamed you in some way. And you said, bless you. Not in the hypocritical Southern American way. I don't mean South America, the continent. I mean the Southern way of the United States. Where they'll say, bless her heart. Or bless his heart. And by that they mean, so and so's a dummy. No. By genuinely wishing that the author of life. That the living God would return this soul. This breath of life and get them active in his way of life, inviting them to the table where there is table fellowship around the teaching of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever blessed someone in this way? If you hate the president and you're bound to hate one president. And we mentioned earlier, you got to pray for the king or the emperor in the earlier chapters of the scroll of first Peter, the first scroll of Peter. Have you genuinely ever prayed for your president to have a change of heart and become a real man of God? Ask yourself that question. Verses 13 to 17. Who is there then to harm you if you are eager to do what is right? But if you do suffer because of your righteous behavior, God's blessing is upon you. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be disturbed. Sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to make a reply to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that is in you. Do it, though, with gentleness and respect. Hold on to a good conscience, so that when people revile your good behavior in the Messiah, they may be ashamed. It is better to suffer for good conduct, if God so wills it, than for bad. So first and foremost, we have here that Greek word apologia. You're told to prepare an apologia or a defense. This is where the English term apologetics comes, a whole field of study where people try to defend the Lord. And sometimes that gets out of pocket or, you know, in disarray when They focus on it too much from a philosophical perspective, as opposed to here where the apostle Peter, the rock, is telling us that we need to do this scripturally. We need to sanctify the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the perfect prophet, priest, and king in our hearts. Again, not that place that is a seat of sentimentality, but that place where the cogitation happens, where the thinking happens. We need to think about the suffering and how it's unavoidable in life. Life has suffering. It's going to be there. And yet, we need to live out a life of love in obedience to the law of that Messiah, of that Christ, of that perfect prophet, priest, and king. We need to lean into suffering. The right reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his cohorts are accused by some modern day protesters of ascribing to something they refer to in negation, pejoratively, as respectability politics. And yet it was the respectability politics of MLK and his ilk that got a lot of change to happen. It was normal people who were sheepish, who were not convicted in their spirits, watching well dressed Sunday's best black folks in their suits and in their dresses with hats getting hosed down by the police power and by firefighters, being brutalized in their black bodies by the force of the state that changed many people's thoughts and that brought civil rights change, that brought a little bit more justice and a little bit more mercy into the United States. But what if it didn't? Would we still believe that our shepherd sits on the throne? This is something we have to think about. Verses 18 to 22, which is the end. For the Messiah, too, suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. In the Spirit, too, he went and made the proclamation to the spirits in prison, who had earlier on been disobedient during the days of Noah, when God waited in patience. Noah built the ark in which a few people, eight in fact, were rescued through water. That functions as a signpost for you, pointing to baptism, which now rescues you, not by washing away fleshly pollution, but by the appeal to God of a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, he has gone into heaven, and it is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. In past conversations with some of my lower church Protestant brothers and sisters, I have been mocked and scoffed at for being baptized as a baby and being in a community in which we baptize babies. They want to say that that is just a shower. It's merely a bath. It's merely to wipe out pollution. But the word of God, without setting an age minimum or maximum, without setting uh, a dox or a belief that is necessary and explicit tells us that we are saved through water. The Lord has both ends of the spectrum. He's able to use the forces of nature, the elements for good, quote unquote, and for bad, quote unquote, because they're not inherently either of these things, but they are instead functional. It's all about how they use him. It's all about how they are used. It's all about how he wants to use them for his purpose, for his teleos, for his ends. And he is the one who decides whether it's a worthwhile venture, a worthwhile action, indeed or not. So we see this Enochic language. We'll see that more as we get to Second Peter and especially in Jude. So, the scroll of Enoch or the book of Enoch, there are echoes of it here. But also, if you don't want to get into the so called Deuterocanon or Apocrypha, or as we would say in the Gezrite tradition, simply canon, then forget the book of Enoch and reread Genesis chapter 6. When you do that, you will see how the apostles are constantly reminding you to read the Hebrew Bible and to See how they interpret it, how they preach Christ through the Old Testament. Christ is forever our example, okay? While he is suffering for righteousness, he says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And he frees prisoners. The prisoners from Genesis chapter 6. Rooted in his resurrection and ascension unto power, we are saved not through that bath because it's not about bodily pollution. It's not about you being nasty. No, it's about the regenerate, the regenerative, the life-giving waters of baptism, the new circumcision, the signpost of inclusion and entrance into the kingdom of the King who is our shepherd to whom be glory along with his heavenly Father and his life-giving Holy Spirit, both now and ever, unto eons and eons.
1: Here we are.